Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. And I'm Aaron Powell. Joining us today is Chris Edwards, Director of Tax Policy Studies at Cato and editor of DownsizingGovernment.org, and Ryan Bourne, who occupies the R. Evan Scharf Chair for the Public Understanding of Economics at Cato. Welcome to Free Thoughts, gentlemen. Thank you. Good to be here. How do we measure inequality? Well, I think the first thing we, we uh, should look at is that both income inequality and wealth inequality are discussed uh, in in, uh, in popular discussions. The politicians often conflate the two, but they're actually very different thing. Income inequality, of course, has to do with the distribution of, of incomes at any point in time. And incomes depend both on, upon what people earn in the market uh, and uh, the government benefits they get. Wealth inequality is quite distinct. Wealth inequality has to do just with the private wealth you own. And uh, traditionally, you know, when you think about it, because we have these giant uh, entitlement programs these days like Social Security and Medicare, that's sort of sort of wealth that people think they have when they retire, but it's not taken into uh, the government accounts. So wealth inequality has to do with the the uh the distribution of privately owned wealth and income inequality there's a lot of complexities about you know is it just market income or are you including government benefits as well so what would wealth includes something like assets i mean so your 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 bank account your stocks and bonds your house your monet uh things like this would be included in wealth right that's right so so Ryan Bourne and I's uh, new study uh, for Cato we just look at wealth inequality and you know if wealth inequality you know considers uh, everything your financial assets your pension assets your your house um the democratic proposals currently to impose a wealth tax the general idea is to tax everything that the richest Americans own, their, their home, their, all their home furnishings, their jewelry, their art collections, and all their financial assets and their pensions and their business assets. So the, the idea is to try to be a measure of wealth as broadly uh, as you can. Does, does debt factor into that? So like a, a physician who is making a ton of money but has a fixed every month they're paying student loans, does that come out of when you're looking at total wealth? Does it draw it down? Absolutely. So here's uh, – so, so we have one good source of wealth in the United States and the Federal Reserve does a, a survey every three years called the Sur uh, Survey of Consumer Finances and they look at both assets you own uh, and debt, household debt as well. So um, – and, and this plays a big role in the statistics. So people, for example, uh, young people who are just uh, starting out in their uh, their careers, they don't have a lot of assets, but they've got a lot of student debt, and that pushes them into the negative wealth territory. Um, and of course, uh, then people with you know own homes have a lot of home debt. So debt very much plays into the statistics. So I guess this raises a question of when we're when we talk about when people are like, well, these you know we have this inequality, and what we imagine is that that's it's this spectrum from you know absolute destitution to you know i own seven mansions and 100 cars and you know whatever else and but what that really what that spectrum is when you're imagining is like a spectrum of um living standards but is what is there a relationship or what is the relationship I mean, there's obviously some but how strong is the relationship between inequality in terms of wealth and income and actual living standards of the people we're measuring you're exactly right, Aaron, and this is why some of the statistics used in this debate are so misleading. So every year, for example, Oxfam releases a report on looking at global um, wealth inequality, and what they usually 
purport to show is that, say, the top ten percent, uh, the top ten wealthiest people in the world own as much as I don't know the the bottom fifty percent of of the world's population, and those can be very very misleading because they use these net debt figures that that Chris was talking about. So, according to that, the poorest person in the world might be somebody, for example, who's studied at Harvard, ran up extortionate amounts of, of student debt to invest in their own human capital, which actually is going to produce a, an asset in terms of their potential earnings over their lifetime. But they would appear in these statistics as the poorest person in the world. So it's very misleading in regards to living standards. And of course, there's an additional problem there as well, which is that when you're looking at uh, a wealth distribution at one point in time, you don't consider it doesn't reflect the kind of life cycle that people go through. So it shouldn't really surprise us, for example, that not many people have much in the way of, of assets until the time that they're in their 30s and their 40s when they're, they're really earning significant amounts in the labor market and are able to save sustainably. But if you're looking at a snapshot of wealth inequality over time and a given distribution, quite often you're comparing people who are very late in life, have wide ownership of assets against some of these people who perhaps are just coming out of university with extensive amounts of student debt, or just through virtue of the fact that they're fairly young, don't own much in the way of assets in the first place. How does that then play out when we're when we look at the the statistics? So if we if we say um Wealth or income inequality is X in America, um, and and so it's some you know as a lot of people who we might talk about today say it's like it's a very high number. It's there's a lot of it. If you were to instead just compare income or not income bands, age bands, so we're going to look at um, inequality among thirty to forty year olds or fifty to sixty year olds. What does that do? To does how much of the inequality kind of disappears if instead if you're looking at comparing apples to apples as opposed to comparing 18 year olds to 65 year olds? So, so there is there are cross country studies. You're absolutely right. The demographics in different countries differ. Some countries are younger. Some uh, countries have uh, more gray, more gray haired people. Right. So, uh, so there are sophisticated studies that try to adjust for that across country, but there's a whole, all kinds of data out there in the popular media claiming that certain countries have more or less wealth inequality than others, but they don't take into account important, uh, factors like that. Yeah. As, as Ryan sort of touched on, supposing you had a society with just two people. They both earn, say, 50000 a year, but one of them was 25, one of them was, say, 60 and nearing retirement. Uh, the, if uh, Income inequality-wise, it would be a completely equal society. But let's say the uh, person who's 60 was fairly frugal and he saved uh, throughout her life, um, she would have a lot of wealth. And so that society would have no wealth, uh, no income inequality, but high wealth uh, inequality. So Ryan and I have come to the conclusion that wealth inequality is completely a completely meaningless statistic. It really is meaningless for some of those reasons we just touched on. Income inequality is interesting to, uh, to, to examine, but wealth inequality kind of doesn't really tell you, uh, anything about the society. And we, we go into, uh, our, our paper some, uh, examples of this. There, there are, uh, measures across country of wealth inequality measured by the so-called Gini coefficient. So you get some countries like Kazakhstan and Ukraine and Russia that are highly unequal by the measures. And I think we know the reason. They're very corrupt. Corrupt countries, so that's probably why they're very unequal. Uh, other countries, like United States, 
have high levels of wealth inequality, and it's probably because of capitalism, probably because we have Silicon Valley, a lot of uh, entrepreneurs who make many billions of dollars. So in those cases, wealth inequality is a reflection of very positive, dynamic uh, economy. A good example of that is China has become a lot more unequal uh, uh, over the last couple decades. But anyone who's you know reads uh, sort of economics news understands that China is vastly wealthier across the board than it used to be. So ultimately, you know, it's interesting to look at some of the causes of wealth inequality, but the, the measurements themselves don't mean anything. And of course, one of the things, that, perhaps surprising things that we tend to find in the data is that some of the countries that we think of as being very equal when we talk about income uh, inequality, the Scandinavian countries, Denmark and Sweden, are also found to have very high levels of wealth inequality. And in those countries, that can actually be a reflection of the extensive welfare state in itself. Now, why is that? Well, if through the government you're providing generous retirement benefits, generous healthcare benefits, um, social insurance in case somebody loses their job and all of these other um, eventualities. What you're doing is both reducing the need, um, the incentive, and um, actually reducing the means for ordinary middle class people to save because they have broad-based tax systems that actually take quite a big share of your earnings. And of course, um, another reason why wealth inequality, that widens wealth inequality is that um, those benefits in the terms of the retirement benefits, the health benefits, aren't heritable in the same way that ordinary uh, private assets are heritable. So you, you, you add up all of those different things. And what I think the point Chris is getting at is that looking across countries, there doesn't appear to be any obvious relationship between the degree of wealth inequality a country sees and any meaningful metric of well-being, which I think is the point that you were trying to make in the question. It could be that is it also possible that in some of these countries like Denmark and Sweden, which I'm not too familiar with how complex their tax code is, but I know it's pretty high. They they kicks in pretty high in terms of taxing, and some of them used to tax wealth in the way that Elizabeth Warren is now. But it seems like just describing what wealth can be, it makes it much easier to hide it uh, from the tax from the tax. So maybe if you have pretty high taxes for the rich people in Denmark, they're actually better at hiding it too. They're going and buying offshore things or buying investments that makes it difficult to tax it on that top end because of tax avoidance is always something that richer people can do better than poorer people generally. I don't think that's why the uh, you're right. Europe Europe is uh, they have a lot of cross border flows of wealthy people over the last few decades because of high income taxes, high wealth taxes. A lot of uh, wealthy Europeans, race car drivers, and soccer players and the like, they move to places like Switzerland. Absolutely, there's uh, there's a lot of uh, movement there, but there is pretty solid statistical data that uh, the the that what Ryan describing uh, is what's going on in Europe. There's a good European Central Bank study a few years ago. They have a good database of sixty thousand. Uh, European households across a dozen countries, their household finance data, uh, with their sophisticated statistical analysis, they pretty conclusively uh, prove that these countries like Denmark um, and, and Sweden that have the biggest welfare states have the least middle class savings. Okay, Countries like Spain that have smaller welfare states, they've actually got a lot more middle class savings, uh, interestingly enough. And so that's what's causing the, uh, the the greater wealth inequality. We including things like 401ks and savings? Because I mean, yeah, that, that, yeah, that'd yeah, be yeah. a thing that Americans do because we don't count upon this massive – because it, I mean, it makes complete sense. Yeah. I think that the Denmark marginal rate of about 60 percent kicks in at about 50 
65 or 60,000 euros a year, which right. gives you very little to save, like to put away. And then you don't, right. and then you're like, well, they're going to give me checks no matter what. So what's the point kind of thing? That's the, that's the point. Correct? Yeah. I think the, the point that Chris was making is there's, there's different dynamics here that, that offset each other. Clearly the US, Russia and Denmark have very, um, similar Gini coefficients overall. But in the US, a lot of that, um, income inequality seems to be driven by returns to entrepreneurial and capitalist activity. In Sweden and Denmark, it seems to be uh, a result primarily of the the big extensive welfare state. And in other countries, it can be cronyism too. Hence why just looking at wealth inequality statistics doesn't on its own give you any meaningful information about the desirability of a wealth distribution because it doesn't give us any information about how that distribution has arisen uh, through economic activity or cronyism. It, in this country, uh, th- there's a, there's been a lot of good data also about this crowding out or displacement effect of the welfare state. Uh, the former Harvard economist Martin Feldstein, one of the top uh, sort of fiscal economists of the last half century or so, uh, one of the things he re- uh, wrote a bunch of papers on was how Social Security induced this gra- uh, crowding out of uh, middle class retirement savings. So that that's pretty clear from his work. That we we uh, discussed in our uh, paper. There, there was a good study a few years ago. Uh, these economists that, that modeled the U.S. economy over the last half century, and they found that uh, the, the wealth inequality has risen in the United States to some extent over the last few decades. Uh, they found that about half of that uh, was caused by things like globalization and uh, you know the the, the uh, market capitalism, basically the the you know Silicon Valley and that sort of stuff. But about a quarter of it was caused by this crowding out of the welfare state. The U.S. welfare state has got bigger over the last few decades. Uh, that has induced middle class uh, people to save less, and thus people at the wealth at the top is mainly business wealth. And so people at the top still have their business wealth. It's the people in the middle class. Uh, they save less than they 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 would have because of our all our entitlement programs. Just a clarifying question about how we're measuring this because we reduce this to there's there is a certain level of inequality within a nation, right? And we we can measure that. But the way that we're measuring that, how many people in a given income band does it take to count? So I, let me see if I can clarify that. Um, that you could have a society where. Um, Everybody makes $50,000 a year, but one guy makes a billion dollars a year. And then you could have a society where 50% of the people make $50,000 a year and 50% of the people make a billion dollars a year. And would those have the same level of income inequality well, in the measurements? Well, we're talking about wealth inequality, but the there are or, different sure. me- there are three different measures mainly that are used in this debate. There's a Gini coefficient which is uh, a quite complex all all-encompassing distributional measure that ranges between zero and one, zero being absolute equality, one being absolute um, inequality. That um, would be like one person has all the wealth and everyone else has nothing kind of thing. That's exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, increasingly, economists are also supplementing that with different measures as well. So they'll do like the top 1% uh, share of total wealth. So the top 1% of wealthy, uh, you have a distribution where you put list everyone in terms of their wealth. How much, what proportion of total wealth does the top 1% have or the top 10% say? Now, clearly, you know, they sometimes can show different things depending on the distribution uh, at any given time. But I think people are using these different measures to kind of supplement each other to try and give a more rounded story of what's happened to inequality over time. When Chris talked about entrepreneurship and 
and the, what the American wealthy are like. But uh, I've known some people who, you know, great grandpa invented like the zipper or some small part of something that created a huge amount of, I mean, we had a lot of this wealth in the 1890s and 1900s and the kind of Edith Wharton world with all the big houses in New York. And, and you just put that in a trust you know, do some sort of minor things to it, don't dip into it, and it will just go. I mean, it's hard. If you have a $100 million trust in 1900, you, that could still be going to grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren who didn't do anything to deserve it whatsoever. And there are definitely those people in the world. But how, I mean, is that a lot of the rich people we're talking about, the wealthy people? So there's a couple of points here. One is that uh, one good source of data that a lot of analysts look at is the, the Forbes magazine has produced a list of the 400 wealthiest Americans since 1982. Every year they come out with a new list. And a lot of analysts have looked at that to see how much dynamism and the like there is on that list. One thing we know from that list is that the share of the richest Americans, the top 400, who earn their uh, wealth themselves from their entrepreneurial activities has grown from about 40% in the 80s to 70% today. If you look at the list of the top 400 richest Americans, it's mainly people like Jeff Bezos, the wealthiest person uh, in the United States, and other high-tech uh, uh, entrepreneurs. So the the, uh, the inherited wealth has declined greatly uh, in importance. And uh, most analysts looking at it find that there's more inherited wealth is more of an issue, uh, more more of a, uh, of the wealth of Europe than in the United States. That said, there's nothing wrong with inherited wealth. In fact, families that um, uh, uh, families that can continue their uh, wealth and build their wealth over time, that is good for the rest of us. Uh, when wealthy people keep their wealth uh, saved, it really means that they uh, that the, the most wealth is business wealth, the vast majority of it. It is not gold bars hidden under uh, the mattresses of In Jeff Bezos. Inert doing nothing. Yes. It's most, so, so Jeff Bezos' wealth is his 15 uh, percent ownership of Amazon. So he owns all these assets out across the United States that employ 600,000 Americans. So we want – the rest of us want rich people to keep their wealth uh, saved and uh, producing GDP, which is good for the rest of us. So we want them to save. And that's what I think people were coming in with uh, complain about the wealthy and want a wealth tax. They would hit all wealth. They, you know, some wealth is croniest wealth and we want to get rid of that. But what you would hit mainly with a wealth tax is business assets that, that expand the GDP and employ Americans. But it seems like that. So the top 400, sure. I mean, especially when you have dynamic economy and new technologies emerging where you can capture tons of gains there. But what I'm, I was thinking more about the the 20,000th to 1,000th richest person in the world and how many of those people are just kids of rich people with trusts they, and they do nothing. Yeah, they're increasingly becoming – it's increasingly entrepreneurial. It's not just the top 1%. It goes down as well. Uh, it's not just the top 400. It's the top 1% is increasingly uh, entrepreneurial as well. And of course, with globalization um, and kind of winner-takes-all markets that that create, particularly in the digital sphere um, – when people do design the best product in a market, the returns are perhaps higher than they've ever been before. So a good example of this that we write about in the paper is WhatsApp. Um, you know, WhatsApp have designed a service that's fairly 
or extremely low revenue per customer um they charge in some countries for it and that kind of subsidizes the um the product and service for others around the world but as a result of de- designing that kind of best in clap uh, instant messaging uh, app that's widely used on smartphones um the founders of whatsapp have become able to become billionaires and ultimately sold out uh, to facebook so if you were just to look at the wealth inequality statistics the foundation of a company and then sale of a company like whatsapp would show up as worsening wealth inequality in america but actually that's reflective of providing a good and service that has provided low cost uh, instant messaging services to billions of people around the world now clearly from a economic welfare perspective that is a good thing and that's another reason uh, a good example i think of how these statistics don't actually capture what the economic effect uh, has been that has led to them in the first place do we have a way of capturing measuring what you just described like kind of the the positive externalities so that we can we can see like this person has their their income is extraordinary or their their level of wealth is extraordinary but it's only this small fraction of the overall wealth that they have created in the world or does it just get too hard to measure that in, sort of in thing? In fact, there was a, a study that we uh, discussed in our paper that goes exactly to that point. Uh, the economist William Nordhaus, uh, uh, N-O-R-D-H-A-U-S, I hope I'm pronouncing his name properly. Uh, he did a model of the U.S. economy over the last half century. Uh, and, and looked at some of the, uh, looked at the technological innovations and, and productivity, uh, in our economy. He found that, uh, technological innovation, 2%, uh, of it was captured by the entrepreneur and the entrepreneurial company. So like Jeff, uh, Bezos getting wealthy, but 98%, uh, resulted in broad benefits for society. In other words, consumers benefited. So, he, he thinks that 2% of all this innovation we're seeing in our economy uh, was captured by the company and the entrepreneur, 98% uh, by consumers. Let me cl- clarify what, like, how that would be measured. Is this like you're kind of saying how happy Amazon makes people versus how much Jeff no, Bezos earns? This would be quality-adjusted prices. Yeah, it would be productivity uh, pr- basically. Yeah, and, but, you know, and, and improvements to the general efficiency of the economy and so how much it raised – activity raised GDP. So – the whole, all of Amazon itself raising GDP. Well, he like, didn't. I mean, he wrote this paper pr- prior to Amazon, so we we can't say exactly that ninety eight percent of the benefits of Amazon have, have spilled out. Um, this was using previous technological innovations, but as a rule of thumb, he seemed to suggest that overwhelmingly, the returns to say. Uh, Amazon delivering lower prices to consumers, the fact that there was more choice on offer to consumers than ever before as a result of the number of products on there. And, you know, the efficiency of, of delivering things to people at speed. If you add up all of those benefits, they tend to be legions higher than the, the returns to the individual. Think about how most technological innovations have happened in our economy. They, you, you get an entrepreneur and an entrepreneurial company will come along, like say Steve Jobs with his uh, Apple computer. Uh, and in the early years, he's ahead of his competitors and he makes high profits. But high profits, of course, in a market economy signal other entrepreneurs to come in and eat away at his profits, reducing his profits down to sort of a normal level. And so there's this constant race, of course, for entrepreneurs 
entrepreneurs trying to make excessive profits. But in a market w- with competition, those those profits attract uh, com- uh, competitors, and uh, the, the excess profits are uh, eliminated. So you know, uh, the, our general recommendation here at Cato, of course, is to open up all markets as much as we can to invite vigorous competition uh, to get rid of the excess profits. Uh, but Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren seem to think that there's excess massive profits everywhere. That isn't true. But, you know, we would if, if therefore more competition to eliminate the excess profits and oligopolies, we would be with them. Well, I've made this point about the iPhone or just, just Steve Jobs in general. If you just take the iPhone, I mean, it's, it's re- related, I think, to your point of like consumer surplus, how much consumer surplus did he add? What would be the difference between how much someone would spend? For an iPhone versus what they actually paid, if you would pay $2,000 for it and you paid $800 for it, you have $1,200 of consumer surplus. But the other aspect is, I mean, all the businesses that were created by the smartphone in general, WhatsApp you mentioned, um, and other things that people had no prediction, such as Square, right? The, right who thought that the iPhone would put uh, cash register machines out of business? I mean, it's in this sort of churning productivity thing. Steve Jobs died however many billionaire, but I'm pretty sure that he added more than he took out. On well, think point. of all the things that the iPhone has replaced as well. You only yeah. have to look through, you know, on the phone you have maps, you have calculators, you have compasses, uh, address books, all of these other things that people u- used to previously buy as physical products have now been replaced by that technology. But, okay, so Jeff Bezos makes a lot of money and maybe he makes – just some fraction of the overall wealth that his activity has created, so 2 percent or whatever it happens to be. But as of right now, he has more money than he could reasonably spend in a lifetime. He, you know, he probably can't spend money faster than he brings it in. That's like uh, a Brewster's Millions problem. So, yeah. But yes, so, you're probably so right. So that's good then. So his money stays invested in the economy and he's not consuming it. What we what what would be bad for me is if he used all his money to buy luxury yachts and, and stuff like that. That because it would be his personal consumption. If he leaves his assets invested in the economy throughout his life and he dies with this massive amount of wealth invested in businesses, that would be great for the rest of us. But what's wrong us. with the yacht thing? That's the yacht business. I mean that we don't have a problem with that. No, it's personal it's it's personal consumption. I think it's less it, creates less leverage for the broader economy. But but I guess the point is you'd, you'd see like so someone on the left, like a Bernie Sanders was born, might say, OK, so yes, he's that, that money is is in investments and growing and it's supporting the economy and whatnot. But what he's not doing with that money is like he could be – how many people could he be feeding? How many people are going hungry right now who could be fed if he took even 10 percent of the money that he stockpiled and put it towards feeding those people or scholarships for kids or, or all the, the kinds of things that government pays for. And so wouldn't we – like he would still – even if we took half of the billions that he has, he would still have many, many billions and he would still have a many, many billions worth of incentives to create a company like Amazon. And so wouldn't couldn't we get the best of both worlds? Well, you're making two big assumptions there, or they, they would be making two big assumptions there. I know you're playing devil's advocate. So the first is that um, that money being spent through government would be more efficiently spent and bring more in the way of benefits to the broader population than that money being invested in the economy and in, in, in uh, other businesses or the like. And I think that's a highly debatable point. Uh, the second point is that how you raise that in, in terms of a wealth tax in this case, is it doesn't risk deterring uh, entrepreneurs delivering some of the entrepreneurial activity that has actually led 
to innovative companies like Amazon in the first place. Now, of course, we can't say for every individual billionaire if a wealth tax had been imposed uh, prior to, to the company coming about, how much that would have deterred them from actually undertaking that activity in the first place. But on the margin, that's exactly what one would expect. And given these huge societal gains to some of these entrepreneurial technological breakthroughs, it only needs to be a small overall impact on the number of people that are engaging in those activities to be quite a big societal consequence in terms of the lost efficiency to the economy and the benefits of some of these innovative new products. We mentioned a wealth tax a few times now, and I know this is like something that Elizabeth Warren in particular has been campaigning on. And and when she talks about it or her fans talk about it, like, well, it's, I think it's 2%. What she says. She raised to six. I don't know. Okay, but it's like, but it's always, it's like, you know, just two pennies in every dollar. Um, that doesn't seem like much. So I guess what is what is a wealth tax that's being proposed, and why isn't two percent not that big of a deal? So a, a dozen European countries used to have wealth taxes uh, back before the, the 1990s, and they were generally around the 1% level. But Elizabeth warns, even if it was a 2% wealth tax, that's a very high tax because it's an annual tax on a complete broad measure of an individual's wealth. So we were talking about uh, wealthy people. Most of their assets are business assets. So it would be 2% of the value of Jeff Bezos' business, and, and every uh, you know every business in America would pay 2% uh of all the whole value of their wealth to the government uh every year if you have an asset that is only say returning about say 4% a year to the owner and you impose a 2% wealth tax it's like a 50% tax on the income flow from the asset which would be an enormously high rate. So our top income tax rate in in the United States now with state taxes is maybe around 45%. If you had a a 2% wealth tax and the the uh, uh, the rate of return on assets was four percent, so it'd be like adding fifty percent on top of our current income tax of forty five percent. So you'd get up to almost uh, the government grabbing the vast majority of the of the uh, return flow from every asset in the economy. So a two percent tax, unlike what Elizabeth Warren is saying, is a gigantic, massive tax on capital. To go back to the previous discussion a little bit. In the long run, there's a there's a short and long run difference here. In the short run, yeah, the government can confiscate wealthy people's wealth and give it to low income people, people in need. In the long run, the vast uh, increase in our standard of living over the long run is determined by technological innovation and entrepreneurial activity, as I'm sure you would agree. So uh, impediments and barriers to entrepreneurship and investment and technological advance impacts us all vastly in the long run. And that's what I think we should be thinking about as policy analysts. How does this work in terms of impediments? Because occasionally you hear discussions of innovation or maybe lack thereof in Europe. Um, do we have any good numbers? So if we have the wealthy with their money in investments, in doing stuff, maybe VC firms, for example, like venture capital, which is a huge thing um, starting up. There's some big number. I think it was in Tyler Cowen's book about how many U.S. firms are started with venture capital. Um, do we know, like as a matter of course, uh, maybe you guys don't know the paper, but that like it's harder to get such investment in Europe or in countries that, that take more of either the wealth or the high income than it is in America because they have less robust systems of investment? There is actually 
I mean, the OECD has has uh, has discussed, for example, that there are a lot more venture capital and a lot more so-called angel investment in the United States. You know, venture capital is uh, are these partnership companies uh, that, uh, that 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 people contribute to that invest in a broad range of startups. Angel uh, angel investors are single wealthy people uh, that throughout U.S. history have been important um, a source of uh, uh, entrepreneurial finance. I mean, if you go back and you know Thomas Edison was funded uh, by angels and uh, you know and and many other uh, great entrepreneurs. Wealthy people tend to put about five or ten percent of their money into angel investment, meaning you know startups and and that sort of thing. Jeff Bezos uh, spent, puts a lot of his money into these very risky ventures. We need wealthy people to do this because. Uh, other uh, people don't have the extra cash to invest in the really risky stuff. We need we need someone in the society to be investing in really risky long bets because some of them um, pay off. I mean, Steve Jobs and the microcomputer, who would have thought he'd be able to do that? At the time, everyone thought that IBM dominated that industry um, and, it, and it took some, some, some young guys with guts and angel investment up front in order for them to get started and to start doing their innovating. But I- I mean, is there some corollary number to how much investment is wasted in this sense? Because someone could say, well, all right, let's take all the money. Let's take 50 percent of Steve Jobs's wealth and then the government will do that R&D. You know, and the, the government sent someone to the moon. Uh, they invented the internet. Like they, you know, they give them more resources. Why wouldn't they be able to be the ones that do this and do it for like the people, right? Do it, do it in a way that's democratic, not because someone has a, has a vanity project, but actually like for the people in a democratically accountable way. Yeah. This all comes back to William Balmore and his uh, distinction between invention and innovation. Of course, governments around the world have often pumped lots of money and investment into certain prestige projects and things you had the space race for example russia spent a lot of its um spent a lot of money on that but really it's only a dynamic free market economy that can utilize the technological breakthroughs for consumer friendly uh products um and so you know our our um economy is demand driven and one of the roles of entrepreneurs is to tap into latent demands and provide us with things that we don't even know we want uh right now and you can only really find that out and obtain that information through the trial and error process of a market economy so yeah you could have the government investing like crazy in certain um technological fields whether that would result in products that actually benefit ordinary people in terms of improvements in their lives or lower prices uh is 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 much more unclear you need a market economy to allocate resources such that it actually meets the needs of ordinary people the government the government cannot do what uh entrepreneurs and venture capitalists for example do for the economy the future is unknowable no one knows what you know what the next uh, apple computer is going to be you need a lot of experiments market economies work because there's a lot of different pockets of money around and a lot of different experiments so that's what we want if you look at venture capital for example it's not just the money flow it's the hands-on experience of the expert venture capitalists choosing entrepreneurs, helping them build their their company. The same with angel investors. It's not just that they're giving money, giving wealth like a government would. It's the hands-on guidance to young entrepreneurs. It's the due diligence. It's the discovery of, of these entrepreneurs. Angel investors 
and venture capitalists are often expert in industry areas. They research, they find good entrepreneurs, and then they guide them in the future. And that offers the the, the that provides the best way, I think, to uh, to find the you know the the technologies that are going to be real breakouts. Okay, but maybe a counterexample that sets my libertarian teeth on edge, but. Defense, weapons. Um, here's an area where uh, what we've got, the technology that we have today in uh, weapons of war is wildly more sophisticated in ways that could never have been imagined than what we had 100 years ago. Um, and it's a market driven – like it's private actors building this stuff, but it's a market driven entirely by one buyer, the government that's allocating funds and people are come are experimenting and coming up with new and innovative ways to kill people but it seems to be leading to the kind of advancement that it sounds like you're saying shouldn't be happening or would be better happening in a market so so i would actually i would push back on part of that i think one of the reasons why the uh the u.s defense manufacturers have been so successful is because they've sold in global markets there is competition there isn't just one buyer and if you brought and and they are private companies if you said if you brought the r&d for the next fighter jet within the pentagon building it'd be a disaster it wouldn't work you need lockheed martin wants to sell a lot of fighter jets not only to the u.s government but the governments around the world and there are other european manufacturers and Chinese manufacturers these days. I think that competition has been enough to really drive that industry ahead. Okay, so if if we have this the wealthy and they do good things uh, in the in the market, it seems pretty clear that they do bad things in the political sphere in the sense of of sort of taking over our political systems. Speaking disproportionately loud, Mike Bloomberg is running through $30 million of ads. Mike Bloomberg is a billionaire. Um, so shouldn't we be concerned about how the wealthy are operating politically? I mean, the system seems kind of rigged and maybe it's because they have disproportionately more influence. That doesn't, that seems like a pretty not even crazy statement. Well, it's not a crazy statement on the on the face of it, and clearly there are there is a lot of cronyist activity. But actually, when you look at the details, what you tend to find is the worst forms of cronyism come when you kind of have vested interests within the economy. Certain sectors kind of all, all get together and demand something of government, because then quite often what you're bringing is not just money to politicians, but also votes as well, a voting block, an interest group that benefits from a government program. Now. Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders like to talk about billionaires having seized the government. Uh, many people hold this idea that the, the broader the distribution of wealth, the more political power resides um, within the top 1%, say. But I just don't think that that is borne out by the evidence. Uh, Larry Summers was at the Peterson Institute quite recently talking on this subject. And he made the point that... Um, Sure, rich people tend to have more access to politicians than poorer people. That's always been the case. The question really is, if you took a lot of the wealth away from the very wealthiest people, would that impact in any meaningful sense the amount of political access that those individuals had? He made the example that to get onto the kind of top donor table of Democrats, you probably need to donate four million dollars per year. Now, clearly, these people that we're talking about when we're talking about the top 1% of entrepreneurs across the country, we're talking, uh, you know, especially for the, the very richest people, the top 400 we've, we've, we've discussed, we're talking about billionaires. The idea that any meaningful sense that a, a wealth tax that even reduced their wealth in half is going to reduce their political access and then have any meaningful um, 
distinctive impact on political outcomes just doesn't seem to be the case. And actually, if you go through and look at the views of wealthy people, um, on average, how their views differ from the rest of the population. They tend to be far more worried about government deficits. They tend to want to cut um, or be more willing to contemplate cutting some entitlement programs. They want to spend uh, less on defence spending. Uh, they tend to be in favour of free trade and they tend to be very socially liberal on uh, social issues. Now, can one argue at the moment that they're getting their way in any of these areas in any meaningful sense. Sure, they also tend to be more in favour of tax cuts for businesses and they tend to be uh, more hostile on the margin to regulation. But the idea that they've captured politics at the moment, when you look at these studies of their views and compare it to the political outcomes we're seeing at the moment, just doesn't seem to be borne out by the evidence. But if they're spent, okay, so we have some evidence of this. I mean, there's obviously a bunch of things happening in the economy with different interest groups playing off. But I mean, on one level, your point about taking their wealth and, you know, how much, you know, would you have to take to diminish their influence? That's, I mean, I think Bernie or Elizabeth Warren would say, well, that just means you have to take more until their influence is diminished. Um, I don't think that Bernie has any problem with that. Uh, but, if they're if you did say that like they're for lower taxes, they're for like regulation. This these are the kind of things that the average person on the Elizabeth Warren camp thinks the world is has been turned into, and like a neoliberal like pro market oppressive thing run for the favor of billionaires, just like the preferences that that Ryan basically stated. I mean, they don't pay over 50% of tax in America. They used to. They, they got that down. They, they cut the corporate tax from 35 to 23%. There's no wealth tax. There's no VAT. Like it's a market-friendly world, and it benefits the billionaires. I'll make one obvious point on that. Chris and I um, you know, uh, anticipated this line of reasoning. So we actually looked at some numbers across the OECD on the, the top 1% wealth share against social spending as a proportion of GDP across the OECD. And on the face of it, there's no relationship there. Um, whatsoever. Uh, doesn't seem to be any correlation at all. Um, and, you know, as we talked about earlier, a lot of those states, the Scandinavian countries in particular, that do have extensive social spending, which is the ambition of Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, um, they finance it through broad-based taxation. The middle classes pay a significant amount in in their social security taxes. Now, they're not advocating that. What Bernie and Elizabeth Warren are doing in a very populist sense is saying, we've got a group of people that have been denied these benefits that people in other countries receive. And that's all the fault of these rich people. And actually, if we just target the rich people with higher taxation, we can provide all these wonderful benefits. Now, that's just not the way that these other countries work. Um, so I think this this evidence that, or this, this assertion that um, the wealth of the top 1% has come at the expense of the US having a broad-based welfare state is just not there. And actually, if you if you look at the views of individual Americans, there's a reason why there hasn't been these these attacks on the rich in the past. Although on the face of it, if you ask them, of course, um, should these people pay more in tax to provide benefits for you? Unsurprisingly, they say yes. But if you look at surveys and ask what is the most important issue facing America. To listen to Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, you'd think that inequality was. Now, that only ever polls around the 2 to 3% mark. But on Twitter, the, it's very important. Well, on Twitter, yeah. Well, now, this is one of the great ironies that the people most concerned by inequalities seem to be people in the top 10% of the income distribution or wealth distribution. There are actually the nine percentage points 
below the top one percent um maybe that's because they all went to university together and see certain people who they think are less deserving obtain more wealth in a market economy i don't know so what should libertarians uh so if in a bad there's a bad form of wealth inequality um what should libertarians you know say about it or do about it and so we, we, we can't i mean we can't just be like ah nothing just wave your hand this is no concern you know nothing to see here uh how should we address those issues so in our study we have a section on cronyism and we we would agree with elizabeth warren and bernie sanders if they want to get on board with the cato institute to cut farm subsidies and sugar subsidies and other sorts of cronyist policies we'd be all uh with them i mean with sugar for example uh the fangel family of Florida has been the strongest proponents of these uh, sugar subsidies forever. They have a family wealth of $8 billion, one of the wealthiest uh, American families, uh, based on this cronyist federal policy. So we're all in favor of getting rid of these crony policies. We discuss in the paper, you can think about it, there are wholesale cronyist uh, wholesale cronies. So, so whole federal programs like the sugar program, in our view, are illegitimate and they create illegitimate wealth. We would get rid of those. But then there's also corruption and retail cronyism. So. For example, there's a recent Pentagon scandal. Uh, this guy, Fat, uh, Fat Leonard got this, uh, uh, for years, he, he got these, uh, corrupt contracts from the Navy, in the, from the U.S. Navy in the Pacific. So he got wealthy from just the big government contracts and that sort of, uh, retail sort of corruption. Uh, let's shrink government and, uh, and, uh, we'd have less overall corruption. To put, to put two data points on this, the number of federal subsidy programs has doubled since the 80s. The more subsidy programs there is, the more corruption and cronyism. And the number of federal regulations has increased from 55,000 in 1970 to 185,000 today. The more regulations, the more leverage uh, you're creating for lobbyists to come in and cut themselves special deals in Washington. And I think that's what we've got to do. We've got to change the conversation from trying to pit the bottom 99% against the top 1% to instead say, you know, we want to defend people who make their their money through their earnings through their labor market through their ideas in a free and open dynamic economy um, and actually what we want to go after is not the top one percent but people up and down the income and wealth distribution that obtain their resources through cronyism and rent seeking so that's the way we need to reframe the debate i think thank you for listening if you enjoy Free Thoughts, you can find our Free Thoughts discussion group on Facebook or on Reddit at r slash Free Thoughts Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Free Thoughts Pod. As always, please rate and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Free Thoughts is produced by Tess Terrible and Landry Ayers. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org. Libertarianism.org's podcast, The Pursuit, is back with season two. It features real stories of people who are pursuing happiness in the face of pernicious institutional forces. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to podcasts.